Tilda by Mary Wollstonecroft Shelley Florence, November 9th, 1819 Chapter 1 It is only four o'clock, but it is winter, and the sun has already set. There are no clouds in the clear, frosty sky to reflect its slant beams, but the air itself is tinged with a slight roseate colour, which is again reflected on the snow that covers the ground. I live in a lone cottage, on a solitary wide heath. No voice of life reaches me. I see the desolate plain covered with white, save a few black patches that the noonday sun has made at the top of those sharp-pointed hillocks, from which the snow, sliding as it fell, lay thinner than on the plain ground. A few birds are pecking at the hard ice that covers the pools, for the frost has been of long continuance. I am in a strange state of mind. I am alone, quite alone in the world. The blight of misfortune has passed over me, and withered me. I know that I am about to die, and I feel happy, joyous. I feel my pulse. It beats fast. I place my thin hand on my cheek. It burns. There is a slight, quick spirit within me, which is now emitting its last sparks. I shall never see the snows of another winter. I do believe that I shall never again feel the vivifying warmth of another summer sun, and it is in this persuasion that I begin to write my tragic history. Perhaps a history such as mine had better die with me, but a feeling that I cannot define leads me on, and I am too weak, both in body and mind, to resist the slightest impulse. While life was strong within me, I thought indeed that there was a sacred horror in my tale that rendered it unfit for utterance, and now about to die I pollute its mystic terrors. It is as the wood of the Eumenides, none but the dying may enter, and Oedipus is about to die. What am I writing? I must collect my thoughts. I do not know that any will peruse these pages except you, my friend, who will receive them at my death. I do not address them to you alone, because it will give me pleasure to dwell upon our friendship, in a way that would be needless if you alone read what I shall write. I shall relate my tale, therefore, as if I wrote for strangers. You have often asked me the cause of my solitary life, my tears, and, above all, of my impenetrable and unkind silence. In life I dared not, in death I unveil the mystery. Others will toss these pages lightly over. To you, Woodville, kind, affectionate friend, they will be dear. The precious memorials of a heart-broken girl, who, dying, is still warmed by gratitude towards you. Your tears will fall on the words that record my misfortunes. I know they will. And while I have life, I thank you for your sympathy. But enough of this. I will begin my tale. It is my last task, and I hope I have strength sufficient to fulfil it. I record no crimes. My faults may easily be pardoned, for they proceeded not from evil motive, but from want of judgment. 
and I believe few would say that they could, by a different conduct and superior wisdom, have avoided the misfortunes to which I am the victim. My fate has been governed by necessity, a hideous necessity. It required hands stronger than mine, stronger, I do believe, than any human force, to break the thick, adamantine chain that has bound me, once breathing nothing but joy, ever possessed by a warm love and delight in goodness, to misery, only to be ended, and now about to be ended, in death. But I forget myself, my tale is yet untold. I will pause a few moments, wipe my dim eyes, and endeavour to lose the present obscure but heavy feeling of unhappiness in the more acute emotions of the past. I was born in England. My father was a man of rank. He had lost his father early, and was educated by a weak mother, with all the indulgence she thought due to a nobleman of wealth. He was sent to Eton, and afterwards to college, and allowed from childhood the free use of large sums of money, thus enjoying from his earliest youth the independence which a boy with these advantages always acquires at a public school. Under the influence of these circumstances, his passions found a deep soil, wherein they might strike their roots and flourish, either as flowers or weeds, as was their nature. By being always allowed to act for himself, his character became strongly and early marked, and exhibited a various surface on which a quick-sighted observer might see the seeds of virtues and of misfortunes. His careless extravagance, which made him squander immense sums of money to satisfy passing whims, which from their apparent energy he dignified with the name of passions, often displayed itself in unbounded generosity. Yet while he earnestly occupied himself about the wants of others, his own desires were gratified to their fullest extent. He gave his money, but none of his own wishes were sacrificed to his gifts. He gave his time, which he did not value, and his affections, which he was happy in any manner to have called into action. I do not say that if his own desires had been put in competition with those of others, that he would have displayed undue selfishness, but this trial was never made. He was nurtured in prosperity, and attended by all its advantages. Every one loved him, and wished to gratify him. He was ever employed in promoting the pleasures of his companions, but their pleasures were his, and if he bestowed more attention upon the feelings of others than is usual with schoolboys, it was because his social temper could never enjoy itself if every brow was not as free from care as his own. While at school, emulation, and his own natural abilities, made him hold a conspicuous rank in the forms among his equals. At college he discarded books. He believed that he had other lessons to learn than those which they could teach him. He was now to enter into life, and he was still young enough to consider study as a schoolboy shackle, employed merely to keep the unruly out of mischief, but as having no real connection with life, whose wisdom of riding, gaming, etc., he considered with far deeper interest. So he quickly entered into all college follies, although his heart was too well moulded to be contaminated by them. It might be light, but it was never cold. 
he was a sincere and sympathizing friend. But he had met with none whose superior or equal to himself could aid him in unfolding his mind, or make him seek for fresh stores of thought by exhausting the old ones. He felt himself superior in quickness of judgment to those around him. His talents, his rank, and wealth made him the chief of his party, and in that station he rested, not only contented, but glorying, conceiving it to be the only ambition worthy for him to aim at in the world. By a strange narrowness of ideas, he viewed all the world in connection only as it was, or was not, related to his little society. He considered queer and out of fashion all opinions that were exploded by his circle of intimates, and he became at the same time dogmatic, and yet fearful, of not coinciding with the only sentiments he could consider orthodox. To the generality of spectators he appeared careless of censure, and with high disdain to throw aside all dependence on public prejudices, but at the same time that he strode with a triumphant stride over the rest of the world, he cowered, with self-disguised lowliness, to his own party, and although its chief never dared express an opinion or a feeling until he was assured that it would meet with the approbation of his companions. Yet he had one secret hidden from these dear friends, a secret he had nurtured from his earliest years, and although he loved his fellow collegiates, he would not trust it to the delicacy or sympathy of any one among them. He loved. He feared that the intensity of his passion might become the subject of their ridicule, and he could not bear that they should blaspheme it, by considering that trivial and transitory, which he felt was the life of his life. There was a gentleman of small fortune who lived near his family mansion, who had three lovely daughters. The eldest was far the most beautiful, but her beauty was only an addition to her other qualities. Her understanding was clear and strong, and her disposition angelically gentle. She and my father had been playmates from infancy. Diana, even in her childhood, had been a favourite with his mother. This partiality increased with the years of this beautiful and lively girl, and thus during his school and college vacations they were perpetually together. Novels, and all the various methods by which youth in civilised life are led to a knowledge of the existence of passions before they really feel them had produced a strong effect on him, who was so peculiarly susceptible of every impression. At eleven years of age, Diana was his favourite playmate, but he already talked the language of love. Although she was elder than he by nearly two years, the nature of her education made her more childish, at least in the knowledge and expression of feeling. She received his warm protestations with innocence, and returned them, unknowing of what they meant. She had read no novels, and associated only with her younger sisters. What could she know of the difference between love and friendship? And when the development of her understanding disclosed the true nature of this intercourse to her, her affections were already engaged to her friend, and all she feared was lest other attractions and fickleness might make him break his infant vows. But they became every day more ardent and tender. It was a passion that had grown with his growth. It had become entwined with every faculty, and every sentiment, 
and only to be lost with life. None knew of their love except their own two hearts, yet although in all things else, and even in this he dreaded the censure of his companions, for thus truly loving one inferior to him in fortune, nothing was ever able for a moment to shake his purpose of uniting himself to her, as soon as he could muster courage sufficient to meet those difficulties he was determined to surmount. Diana was fully worthy of his deepest affection. There were few who could boast of so pure a heart, and so much real humbleness of soul, joined to a firm reliance on her own integrity, and a belief in that of others. She had from her birth lived a retired life. She had lost her mother when very young, but her father had devoted himself to the care of her education. He had many peculiar ideas which influenced the system he had adopted with regard to her. She was well acquainted with the heroes of Greece and Rome, or with those of England who had lived some hundred years ago, while she was nearly ignorant of the passing events of the day. She had read few authors who had written during at least the last fifty years, but her reading with this exception was very extensive. Thus, although she appeared to be less initiated in the mysteries of life and society than he, her knowledge was of a deeper kind, and laid on firmer foundations. And even if her beauty and sweetness had not fascinated him, her understanding would ever have held his in thrall. He looked up to her as his guide, and such was his adoration that he delighted to augment to his own mind the sense of inferiority with which she sometimes impressed him. When he was nineteen his mother died. He left college on this event, and shaking off for a while his old friends, he retired to the neighbourhood of his Diana, and received all his consolation from her sweet voice and dearer caresses. This short separation from his companions gave him courage to assert his independence. He had a feeling that, however they might express ridicule of his intended marriage, they would not dare display it when it had taken place. Therefore, seeking the consent of his guardian, which with some difficulty he obtained, and of the father of his mistress, which was more easily given, without acquainting any one else of his intention, by the time he had attained his twentieth birthday, he had become the husband of Diana. He loved her with passion, and her tenderness had a charm for him that would not permit him to think of aught but her. He invited some of his college friends to see him, but their frivolity disgusted him. Diana had torn the veil which had before kept him in his boyhood. He was become a man and he was surprised how he could ever have joined in the cant words and ideas of his fellow collegiates, or how for a moment he had feared the censure of such as these. He discarded his old friendships, not from fickleness, but because they were indeed unworthy of him. Diana filled up all his heart. He felt as if by his union with her he had received a new and better soul. She was his monitress, as he learned what were the true ends of life. It was through her beloved lessons that he cast off his old pursuits, and gradually formed himself to become one among his fellow-men, a distinguished member of society, a patriot, and an enlightened lover of truth and virtue. He loved her for her beauty, and for her amiable disposition, 
but he seemed to love her more for what he considered her superior wisdom. They studied, they rode together, they were never separate, and seldom admitted a third to their society. Thus my father, born in affluence, and always prosperous, clomb without the difficulty, and various disappointments, that all human beings seem destined to encounter, to the very topmost pinnacle of happiness. Around him was sunshine, and clouds whose shapes of beauty made the prospect divine, concealed from him the barren reality which lay hidden below them. From this dizzy point he was dashed at once, as he unawares congratulated himself on his felicity. Fifteen months after their marriage I was born, and my mother died a few days after my birth. A sister of my father was with him at this period. She was nearly fifteen years older than he, and was the offspring of a former marriage of his father. When the latter died, this sister was taken by her maternal relations. They had seldom seen one another, and were quite unlike in disposition. This aunt, to whose care I was afterwards consigned, has often related to me the effect that this catastrophe had on my father's strong and susceptible character. From the moment of my mother's death until his departure, she never heard him utter a single word. Buried in the deepest melancholy, he took no notice of any one. Often for hours his eyes streamed tears, or a more fearful gloom overpowered him. All outward things seemed to have lost their existence relatively to him, and only one circumstance could in any degree recall him from his motionless and mute despair. He would never see me. He seemed insensible to the presence of any one else, but if, as a trial to awaken his sensibility, my aunt brought me into the room, he would instantly rush out with every symptom of fury and distraction. At the end of a month he suddenly quitted his house, and unattended by any servant, departed from that part of the country, without, by word or writing, informing any one of his intentions. My aunt was only relieved of her anxiety concerning his fate, by a letter from him, dated Hamburg. How often have I wept over that letter! which until I was sixteen was the only relic I had to remind me of my parents. "'Pardon me,' it said, "'for the uneasiness I have unavoidably given you. But while in that unhappy island, where every thing breathes her spirit, whom I have lost for ever, a spell held me. It is broken. I have quitted England for many years, perhaps for ever.' but to convince you that selfish feeling does not entirely engross me, I shall remain in this town until you have made by letter every arrangement that you judge necessary. When I leave this place, do not expect to hear from me. I must break all ties that at present exist. I shall become a wanderer, a miserable outcast, alone, alone. In another part of the letter he mentioned me, as for that unhappy little being whom I could not see, and hardly dare mention, I leave her under your protection. Take care of her, and cherish her. One day I may claim her at your hands, but futurity is dark, 
make the present happy to her. My father remained three months at Hamburg. When he quitted it, he changed his name. My aunt could never discover that which he adopted, and only by faint hints could conjecture that he had taken the road of Germany and Hungary to Turkey. Thus this towering spirit, who had excited interest and high expectation in all who knew and could value him, became at once, as it were, extinct. He existed from this moment for himself only. His friends remembered him as a brilliant vision, which would never again return to them. The memory of what he had been faded away as years passed, and he who before had been as a part of themselves and of their hopes, was now no longer counted among the living. End of chapter 1